Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc., be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. and gentlemen of the listening audience. I'm Dr. Maurice Selby, and you're listening to Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you a COVID-19 update. Much overdue, but we are bringing you some up-to-date, the latest information that you need to get through this pandemic. And we have joining us Dr. Syra Madad. Dr. Madad is a nationally recognized epidemiologist and leader in public health and special pathogen preparedness and response. Dr. Madad is also core faculty in a national emerging special pathogens training and education center funded by the CDC. She is a fellow at Harvard University's Belford Center for Science and International Affairs and also adjunct senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. Now, that's that's just, um, I mean, we can go on about Dr. Madad, and um, she is just absolutely amazing, so knowledgeable, and really the best person to bring us the information uh, that we're going to get into. But one thing I really want you to pay attention to, ladies and gentlemen, is just the, the frustration, uh, the passion with which Dr. Madad relays this information. Uh, you're going to hear myself and Giorgio Maluf of the Health in Harlem family talk with Dr. Madad about this virus and uh, really just pay attention to the urgency with which we need to address this crisis. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening and enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Maurice Selby. And my name is Giorgio Maluf. 
And we welcome you to the Health in Harlem podcast, featured on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and also on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we have with us Dr. Syra Madad. She is an epidemiologist trained in special pathogens and actually decided to join us uh, tonight as we discuss COVID-19 and really just bring you some updates about what's going on with this pandemic. Now, I know you got the, the folks out there that are just probably inundated with this, right? We've been sort of dealing with this in various ways in our daily lives, um, but this is health in Harlem, and I feel like, I don't know if you agree, Giorgio, we, we had to come back to this um, just to get some more information out there, because really, if there's anything that I would say uh, can help us all in dealing with this problem nationwide, even worldwide, is really just having some solid information uh, that we can all really use so that we can all combat this virus. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Madad, and we are so excited to have you join us. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, so probably one of the, the more common questions that you get uh, in dealing with this, where are we in terms of this pandemic with COVID-19? So in terms of where we are, you know, we have over you know, millions of cases throughout the world. In fact, 21 million cases of COVID-19. And as we speak today, there are over 6.5 million people that are currently infected. And what we know is that that's just the tip of the iceberg, because these are just the number of individuals that obviously have come to a healthcare facility, have been tested, and they're just being counted in the overall numbers. The true number is probably anywhere from 10 to 20 times that. Um, and so, Across the world, you're seeing a very wide spectrum of how COVID-19 is playing out. So it's playing out very differently in the Asian countries, in the European countries, and then here, obviously, in the United States. And some are doing much better than others. So one of yes. the things we often hear is, well, COVID-19 is a respiratory disease. There's nothing really we can do about it. And that's absolutely false because we actually have prime examples in front of us. You're seeing countries like New Zealand. You're seeing countries like China that was the first epicenter yes. that has been able to control the virus. So we have the tools to control the virus. We have the tools to suppress the virus. Yes. But countries, for example, here in the United States, we're just not utilizing those tools properly for a number of different factors. And so here in the United States, now we have um, over 5 million cases, over you know, 166,000 um, you know, 160, you know, deaths look luckily, you know, probably closer to 200,000. So, yes. you know, we're certainly in a, in a state where it's going from bad to worse um, every day. Yes. And I'm glad that you sort of mentioned the, the, how this sort of changes by region. Um, you know, typically, I guess when we see that sort of with other infectious diseases, there are other things that account for it, right? Whether it is a, a change in sort of the climate um, where there, whether there are certain topographical factors, right. Um, in those different geographic areas. Um, uh, but one thing that I'm really glad that you mentioned is sort of the, the behavioral factors that really play into this. Um, one thing that I really want to just say is that <laughs> I actually see these region specific differences. Um, you know, right now I'm actually in Atlanta, Georgia, it's alarming, actually, uh, Dr. Madad, that you sort of mentioned that we're like the hot spot now, essentially in the country, because um, I just came off a clinical shift, you know, seeing patients in the in the ER 
And it was definitely um, more cases that I saw today where I literally walked, you know, out of the room telling the patient, like, you know, it's unfortunate that um, I'm really confident that you have COVID-19. And, and, you know, while this test that we did, the nasal swab is going to take 24 to 48 hours. You know, I'm very confident that this is something that you're you're dealing with. Um, And I've seen that just that uptick uh, just today, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's unfortunately it's that's playing out across the country in a number of different states. In fact, you know, that patient may be lucky that they're going to get their test result in 24, 48 hours. You're seeing some states where you have the turnaround time seven days, 10 days, sometimes longer. Um, And what we know about this virus, it's obviously it's a respiratory uh, virus and speed and scale have always been so important when it comes to infectious disease. So if you're going to get your test result after five or six days, you have likely passed your period where you're most infectious. And so you've probably went about your life, did, you know, mm. whatever you're doing, um, uh, starting new chains of transmission. Um, and then you got your result back, you know, 10 days later, it's, yeah. it's very hard to tell somebody to quarantine in their house um, unless they know that I'm, I'm lab confirmed, right? So if I know I have COVID-19, yes. that gives me more of an impetus to say, okay, I have it. I should stay home. I shouldn't spread it to others. But if I'm in that gray area of, well, I don't know if I have it. I don't get the test result back. I've been home for two, three days. I just want to go out, go to the grocery store. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out. And, and yes. so that, holding that, that ticket of knowing you actually have COVID has a lot of weight to it. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, you're seeing very, very long turnaround times. And I think one of the things I'm actually very um, afraid of going into winter is because we're still seeing significant impacts to supply chain, to our laboratory capacity. Yeah. Now imagine adding seasonal flu to it. And obviously you as a frontline provider, you know every year, you know, you've seen one flu season, you've seen one flu season. And what that means is every flu season is very different. Some mm-hmm. are better and some are worse. A couple of years ago, we had a really bad flu season. That's right. So you can't predict oftentimes if it's going to be a good flu season or a bad flu season. But overall, bottom line is um, it's a significant burden, um, you know, in terms of health on the American people every single year. And we yes. can anticipate that. And now you're going to add that on to COVID-19. And it's very, very unfortunate. We should have spent the summer trying to contain the virus. And in fact, we did the complete opposite. It is, yes. you know, just raging like fire. And now we're going to add another respiratory virus on top of that. And what we know based on um, science and literature and what we're seeing from clinical case studies is co-infection is real. People can get co-infected That's with right. both flu and COVID-19 at the same time. Um, so I think we're, we we obviously are going into uh, the the winter and the fall months knowing that we may obviously have a double whammy, if you will. However, I'm hopeful that because everybody is starting to wear a mask, understand the importance of mask wearing, perhaps they might not be as bad as we anticipate, but we still have supply chain issues. And those are very, very real. Mm. So Dr. Madad, I had a couple of questions uh, stemming from what you just said. So first of all, do you speculate that... Uh, the the resurgence is mainly due to reopening too early is that why we failed to have the same kind of containment response that other countries were able to successfully um carry out yeah and and i think it's it's important to to define you know when we say opening too early the reason why we shut down, uh, you know, and, and did a lockdown is because a couple of reasons. First, we needed to make sure that we, were, you know, we weren't letting the, 
the virus, you know, kind of, um, you know, continue to spread. Uh, we needed to make sure that we were trying to flatten the curve, if you will, and we're not overwhelming hospitals because we know once hospitals are overwhelmed, you see a lot more morbidity, a lot more mortality, um, and obviously people can't get the treatment that they that they need. But another big reason why, obviously, we, we did the lockdown is to buy us time as a nation so we can get uh, up to speed and put the infrastructure and the processes that we actually need to mm -hmm. suppress the virus. And we did none of that. And when I talk about, you know, to suppress and contain the virus, these are classical public health tools that we have used for decades, centuries. And this includes contact tracing. Mm -hmm. This includes building a laboratory infrastructure to be able to test more people. This includes having, you know, um, perhaps some sort of uh, isolation and quarantine hotels on a voluntary basis. So people that do get infected they can safely isolate themselves in these uh, separate areas. We did none of that um, as a nation. Some states uh, obviously did uh, take that time uh, to be able to ramp up these public health measures and case in point, New York State. And that's why New York State has one of the lowest number of COVID cases um, in the nation including our percent positive is, is one of the best. We were the, the nation's first epicenter. We hit, we got hit so hard. We saw a tsunami of cases. Yes. And yet here we are on the complete opposite of the spectrum because we use that time to be able to build up our infrastructure, our capacity. On top of that, it's not just the public health measures, right? One of the things that I have experienced, because I've, I've responded to multiple different epidemics and pandemics over the many years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things besides the public health measure and besides kind of the public health aspect is always the political aspect. You can't take politics out of anything because politics is always part of infectious disease. It's always part of every single response. You just can't take that out. But when it comes to politics, you have very strong leaders that believe in science, that believe in medicine, that believe with evidence and evidence-based data. We, obviously, as a nation, um, seeing are, are seeing a hodgepodge, a patchwork of, you know, um, what people believe in and what they want to implement. And that has really uh, put us, uh, you know, 10 steps behind uh, in terms of containing this virus. So I was just going to ask, um, you mentioned that we were trying to buy time as we... Uh, improve our infrastructure. So I had uh, two questions about that. One, um, is there an example of a locality that uh, did implement these infrastructure like New York, but on a countrywide basis and uh, their success compared to ours? And also, uh, you mentioned that there's a period in which you're most infectious. What is that typically? And uh, does that uh, coincide with the incubation period for the symptoms? So the incubation period for COVID-19 is, is, you know, um, up to 14 days, typically. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of when you're most infectious, this is actually based on, you know, what we're seeing. Indivi individuals are most infectious uh, sometimes before they even show symptoms and during the first few days of when they're symptomatic. Um, and so that's when it's extremely important that obviously you isolate yourself and you don't come in contact with, you know, um, individuals and, 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 and the like and practicing these everyday measures that we talk about. Um, and so that's the one you want to make sure that, you know, you are 
absolutely, you know, isolating yourself and removing yourself from, from other people. In terms of your, your first question, you know, do we have models of success? We absolutely do. And I think a great model, really, if you could look at it, is China, right? So China yep. was the first epicenter. Um, you know, you saw raging number of cases. You saw that hospitals uh, in, in Wuhan were getting overwhelmed and yes. they were building these hospitals, you know, within weeks. They were standing up, you know, hundreds of beds, thousands of bed hospitals uh, to accommodate the overwhelming number of patients that they were seeing. They locked down the entire city, you know, um, and they took that time to build that infrastructure that they need, primarily that whole contact tracing infrastructure That's right. um, and their testing capabilities. And now, as you can see, you know, they obviously are in a much, much better position than the rest of the world. You know, you, we're going to see... Um, uh, clusters, we're going to see outbreaks, right? There's, there's just, you, you can't anticipate that COVID-19 is going to be gone, right? It's, it's, right. it's a, it's a very, it's a highly transmissible infectious disease and it's obviously respiratory. And then we know that asymptomatic transmission is real and it's actually much more common that we, than we initially thought. Um, and so, you know, the likelihood, for example, even in New Zealand, as you've probably heard in the news, you know, that was one country that was able to contain the virus, in fact, have zero cases. Um, I would probably think that they probably still had COVID-19, but at very low levels, you know, yes. because of asymptomatic transmission. It's just very hard to contain this virus. Yep. But it, it was probably circulating at very low levels. But obviously, it becomes a problem when you have a number of people that get infected. Uh, and then obviously, it goes on from, from there. On top of that, you're not testing your entire population every single day, right? So you can't, you don't, you can't say with certainty that nobody in my country has it because you're not testing everybody. Um, and so, you know, it's just one of those things that you can control the virus by the public health measures that we have, by the tools that we have. And it's just unfortunate because we're seeing a struggle. We're seeing a patchwork uh, of this being done across states. And some states are doing a much better job uh, than others. A lot of this takes time, investment, and money. Public health has, has been taking huge budget cuts mm -hmm. every single year. That's and right. It's actually exposing all the gaps that we've had in the United States in, in terms of our healthcare infrastructure, and not just because of not just you know the funding gap of showing you know we needed to invest more in public health, we needed to invest more in hospital preparedness. It is actually showing the socioeconomic factors that's associated with infectious disease outbreaks. And as you know, you know people of color are disproportionately. Uh, you know, infect, uh, affected by COVID-19. This is not something new. It is just adding fuel to the fire. It's just bringing it up and it's, it's getting to a, a level where now people are more aware of it because of COVID-19. But this is a systemic problem that we have had for decades. Um, and we really need to make sure that we are addressing all of these underlying conditions if we really want to not only address COVID-19, but to be better prepared for all the other future COVID-19s that are going to happen, right? And you've heard this phrase so many times. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. when. And I will say the same thing for every single infectious disease because we know that they're out there. We know that this is inevitable. We can't control, you know, the emergence of infectious diseases. But what we can do is we can better prepare uh, for these infectious, infectious diseases and respond better and faster. And the ultimate goal is to save as many lives as possible. Dr. Madad, do you, do you foresee that we would uh, be wearing masks as a lifestyle. And uh, are there certain masks that are more important for us to be wearing and, and more protective or any cloth covering like the CDC was, was uh, uh, mentioning would be an improvement and kind of saving the N95s for healthcare providers? 
So not all masks are created equal, right? And so there are some certain masks, like as you mentioned, N95, that are much more uh, protective in terms of filtering out a respiratory virus than, let's just say, a cloth mask. So there's various degrees of protection when we talk about face masks. Cloth masks, when you talk about that particular type of mask, we know that triple layer is much better in terms of being able to protect yourself better than a single layer. We also know that having valves or vents in the masks is a big no-no because you're obviously letting the virus escape. Um, other types of masks, like surgical masks, we know that they are actually uh, much, much better in terms of being able to block uh, droplets. When in, in the medical field, and this is something that I train frontline providers on all the time, and, you know, I'm also as part of the kind of the contact tracing infrastructure is when we talk about medical grade, you know, equipment and, and face masks. So first, we always make a difference, you know, face coverings that are cloth based, that's not considered PPE, right? So if you're a healthcare worker, if you're doing healthcare activities, we want you to wear medical grade face masks because it provides you that two way protection. First, we know that it's built out of material that obviously is able to uh, serve as a good barrier to provide a two way protection in terms of not only containing your own oral secretions, but also blocking, you know, uh, other individuals' oral secretions, like, you know, um, particles, obviously, as, as they're talking. You can't say that same thing about cloth masks. At the same time, I will say, just because you're wearing a cloth mask, you know, and you're thinking, well, I'm not getting 100% protection, so I'm not going to even wear it. That's absolutely false, right? So the we're wearing a mask not for absolute prevention, but to reduce our risk of getting infected, right? So there's a really big difference between reducing your risk and then absolutely preventing you from getting COVID-19. Even with an N95 mask, right, they're called N95, and that 95 connotates that it's filtering out 95% of the particles. So you still have 5% that can still come through. So it's not giving you that 100% protection. But just because it's not giving that 100% protection doesn't mean you throw your hands up in the air and say, well, I'm just not going to wear a mask because it's not going to do anything for me, right? Because the whole concept is trying to reduce your risk. It's like taking cholesterol medication, right, to prevent heart attacks and strokes. Well, it's not going to give you a definite, well, you're not going have a heart attack and stroke if you take this medication, it's going to reduce your risk, absolutely. But you're, we can't say that you're not going to have a heart attack or stroke, but you're still going to take that medication because it is going to reduce your risk. So that's the same thing about wearing a mask, right? So reducing your risk of contracting COVID-19 and the not all masks are considered the same, but at least it's giving you some level of protection. Now, at the same time, I do strongly believe it is high time that the federal government provide its citizen medical grade masks medical grade surgical masks. You know, we are seven months into this pandemic and you're still telling, you know, grandma to go ahead and sew her own cloth masks. That is absolutely <laughs> unacceptable. You are seeing as, countries... As much as we love grandma. Thank you, grandma. As much as we love, yeah. Grandma, uh, thank you, grandma. Thank you. Yes. We thank appreciate you. your support. <laughs> we appreciate this, this go-getter That's attitude and your ingenuity and craftsmanship. But yes, Absolutely. Dr. Madonna, I'm sorry. Yes. No, we love you, Grandma. <laughs> Thank you. And I've gotten so many amazing masks from colleagues that, I, I mean, I love the prints and, and thank you for all the hard work. But <laughs> yes. I want the, the federal government and I want the government to provide to us up. better, step up and provide us better masks. We should not be making this ourselves, especially seven months into a pandemic where we can enact DPA and other types of measures to be able to provide our own citizens the protective measures that they need. I'm sorry, what's DPA? It's the Defense Production Act. So this is where, you know, Trump is able to enact this uh, this particular measure to be able to convert existing, for example, uh, factories, if you will, to uh, develop resources that we need. Now, I'm not one to 
place blame for this, for where we are, you know? Um, I agree with you, and I, I've expressed on previous shows that I think there were some missed opportunities um, at the largest levels, but even, right, um, going down to our individual behavior. Um, but one thing that I do sort of um, really just want to, that I think we it's important that we address as professionals, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you would agree, Dr. Madad, but um, just some of the way in which we address the public about this this problem right um I, I remember the early days and sort of um me as an emergency room physician right looking at the news reports looking at the articles that were coming out and what was happening overseas in china um, i was concerned without question right um but at the same time there was you know sort of that concern but i wasn't fearful um, or overly anxious to the point where I felt like it would, you know, sort of impact how we went about preparing for this. Um, and also I think what we tried to communicate and I'm talking about from the largest levels down, um, was that, you know, yes, this is a problem, ladies and gentlemen, but don't panic. Right. Um, and I think what came with that was that there were certain, uh, signals or ways in which we put forth this information that sort of, um, led people to take this maybe less seriously. And we see that playing out now, you know, um, where individuals are still going out to beach parties. I had a, a person earlier today that, you know, told me that um, they had traveled to Florida um, not too long ago. And, and that's where we think she acquired the infection. Um, and, and if you look at certain things, for instance, uh, the use of masks. And I remember sort of the, the early stuff coming out. Um, even at the highest levels of government where it was like, no, absolutely, you know, don't go buy a mask, which I think came from just concerns about, um, you know, those supplies being, um, you know, compromised for healthcare providers. Um, but at the same time, we see that this is something that uh, is very useful in preventing the spread of the disease. But this, this conflicting information that's coming out and sort of um, even to a certain degree, when we have uncertainty, not communicating that uncertainty, I think that has contributed to where we are. Um, and therefore, you know, we, we can't necessarily play, place blame on uh, individuals today that <laughs> are out there with no masks shopping in, in Walmart, you know, well, not Walmart, but <laughs> other places that don't mandate masks. Absolutely. You raised an excellent point. And this is something that, you know, I have been highlighting since the very beginning and one thing that we know when it comes to epidemics is risk communication is so important. And this is the way that you talk to the public, right? You're not going to talk to the public like, like you're reading a scientific journal, right? You really need to make sure you're tailoring your response into simple, straightforward, actionable things that they can do and provide them with the resources and the guidance and the recommendations that are based on science and are based on and evidence and, and data. And yes. you also need to also make it very clear, and this is something that we did not do in the beginning. There's a couple of things we didn't do in the beginning. First, we weren't speaking with one voice. You were hearing mixed messages from many different people. And that's obviously not the way we need to have, not the way ep epidemics need to be handled. You need to have one true voice where 
either we're, we're all right or we're all wrong, but you're giving 10 different mixed messages. People are very confused um, and it's very hard to understand what is true and what is not. Transparency is also very key in terms of this is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're recommending. And that's also very, very important because as you know, very early on in this epidemic, you know, a number of us and myself included, because, you know, when we talk about source control, when a patient comes into the hospital, for example, you know, and they're coughing, they're sneezing, or they're symptomatic, we put, that, we put a mask on them because we know they're symptomatic. We want to make sure they're not spreading the disease to other people. And early on in this, uh, in this epidemic, we didn't realize asymptomatic transmission was a problem, right? We thought it was just symptomatic individuals, and that's why masks weren't recommended or wasn't mandated, you know, uh, in terms of uh, saying, you know, these are some of the behavioral changes we want you to do because we didn't have that information. Now that we have this information and we know that 40 to 45% of cases are actually asymptomatic, yes. this is why it's so important for you to wear a mask. But this really goes down to tell people early on as things will change, as science changes, our recommendations will change. They have to change because we learned more information. But when you take that difference of information that we've learned and you've politicized it, and then you're taking the same group of people, you know, like Dr. Fauci and saying, well, you said something in the beginning and now you're saying something different. And, you know, that means that you're lying and X, Y, and Z. No, that's where it's so important for people to understand. Risk communication is so important. Transparency is very important. And knowing where you're getting your facts. And we we continue to, to struggle with this as a nation. Countries that actually have spoken with one voice and, and countries that have actually tried to educate their, their general population have done a much better job controlling the outbreak because they see the value of wearing a mask. They see the value of That's abiding right. by public health measures. And they're also it's not, it's, 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 you know, don't tell me, it's show me, right? And they're actually being models of their own behavior in terms of showing, right. the, you know, wearing a mask. You didn't so see that. the Taiwans of the mm-hmm. world, the Singapores. And, yep. Yes. Well, That's they right. got that message out early. And, and uh, you know, I guess to a certain extent, um, we therefore, and I'm not placing, <laughs> obviously, again, no blame on any particular individual or agency, or the, but as a whole, um, do you think we could possibly um, communicate better? Because that was one thing that I think uh, really maybe just could have been emphasized is is how science works, right? And that um, we had such little information, but yet we learned so much in a very short period of time um, that we were, I would say, fortunate to, to change our recommendations, you know, instead of uh, sort of following through on things that were not working based on the data. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. But being upfront about, um, as you said, the transparency and saying that, Hey, you know, there, um, is, is, there are things about this disease that we don't yet know. There are things that we will learn that might lead to changes in what is done or what's recommended. Um, I mean, I guess ultimately what it comes down to is really how can we going forward, um, you know, sort of do those things. Yeah, exactly. And I think another example, just to highlight, because it's so prevalent in the news, is airborne transmission, right? So you're hearing about COVID-19, and now is it airborne um, or is it through droplet transmission, right? And these terms mean something. Um, And unfortunately, we're doing a really poor job communicating some of this information, right? So when we talk about true airborne like measles, like smallpox, right, or tuberculosis, that's not fitting the criteria of COVID-19. So when we talk about measles, for example, that's one of the most highly infectious diseases known to man. 
if a person that has measles in in a room and they leave that room, measles can still be in the air for up to two hours, for example, right? That's not what we know about COVID-19. That may change, right? But based on what we know, it doesn't fit that criteria. But it's very confusing to the general public because they keep hearing, well, is it airborne? Is it not airborne? And then what does it ultimately ultimately mean to me, right? So if I am uh, a general, uh, if I'm just like a, you know, a person obviously in the community, what do I need to do to change my behavior if it's airborne? And to be honest, there's nothing that we're changing, right? Because we're still saying, Keep your distance, wear your mask, wash your hands, you know, and we're talking about measures to how to, you know, reduce your risk. So we're not we're not telling them anything different, but it's providing more anxiety. It's providing more fear. And we're not doing a good job communicating what these terms mean and what uh, at the bottom line, what does that mean Mm. for you and how do you change that? Um, So it's it's very important to to really being able to communicate that information. And we're going to find new information every day. Right. This is just. That's, that's, that's the name of the game. You're going to find new information every day. It's just how you convey it to the general public that really makes or breaks it. So, so Dr. Madad, what, um, if it was real airborne and the evidence does come out that that's the case, would that change public behavior in terms of allowing uh, the reopening of states? And would it change medical care in terms of uh, making it so that you can only treat COVID patients in... Uh, negative space rooms or, or, you know, rooms that have a ventilation and vacuuming of the air? uh, Or would it mean nothing would change? The ERs would stay the same, everything would stay the same, even if it was airborne? So that's a great question. And right now, if we know if it's truly airborne, if it's like, for example, measles, and based on what we know, it's not, in terms of our engineering controls, in terms of our administrative controls that we are already employing for COVID-19, there wouldn't be a change in it because we're still treating it, obviously, like a respiratory disease. It's primarily spread by droplet transmission. We know that aerosol obviously has a, a role to play, but largely is being driven by a droplet transmission. But in terms of any changes that we would make to our controls, we're already p- placing patients. If we have a negative pressure isolation room, that's where we would pl- place these patients. And then very similarly, as I mentioned, for the general community, we're not going to be writing any additional inform- like new information besides doing what we're already recommending. And we know that ventilation is very important. So we're already recommending that individuals, if you are going to have a gathering, do it outdoors. If you are going to come closer to, to uh, you know, in terms of six uh, feet, wear a mask, things like that. So that type of guidance is not going to, to generally change. In terms of engineering controls within uh, institutions like schools and changing HVAC systems or upgrading filters and things like that certainly that may have an impact on it and uh, and obviously being able to provide better ventilation but that's already being recommended so better ventilation is something that's already being recommended in these institutions sure so so um we were talking about masks not being made equal and uh, you mentioned that 40 to 45 percent of uh, people who are infected with covid actually are asymptomatic um i think that we're even underestimating the numbers that we do have even uh, more than we, we, we might be thinking, because not only uh, are we not testing frequently uh, and universally, but if, let's say, one family member gets uh, diagnosed as positive, most likely, or, or at least I'll just share the experience. I had a, a best friend who um, only one member of the family got tested and was confirmed as positive. The rest of them just assumed that they were. And that was another eight to nine people that would have been registered in the uh, 
in in the epidemiology that actually didn't make it into the statistics. And so I wonder how grossly we're underestimating the number of cases that we actually are dealing with. Um, and I'm wondering if not all testing is the same, that some are more accurate than others. And, you know, uh, if asymptomatic um, carriers would, would, would test positive in all of the testing types or only in specific ones like antigen-based only, but not antibody. Uh, I'm just wondering uh, if, you, if you knew anything about that. Sure. So, so the, there are different types of tests, as you've alluded to. So you have diagnostic tests, um, and there's different platforms of diagnostic tests, right? So you can test for the antigen, which is like a protein, you know, on the, the virus, or you can test the genomic uh, or the, the molecular basis, for example, um, through PCR, right? So the diagnostic te testing essentially tells you if you're infected right now. Um, and then the other type of testing is the serology testing, right? And it tells you if you were infected previously and you've developed antibodies for it. Now, when we talk about diagnostic testing in terms of it telling you whether you're infected right now, what we know about COVID-19 is the incubation period is up to 14 days. So if you think you've been exposed today and you get tested today, right, the likelihood of you showing up positive uh, on uh, a diagnostic test, um, it's, it's hit or miss, right, because you may not have enough viral load for it to be detected. Now, if you go in two or three days later, and typically the recommendation is from the date of your potential exposure, you know, get tested, you know, at least three days out. So you have enough viral load for you to have, you know, uh, a, a test that's uh, much more uh, in terms of accuracy, right? Sensitivity and uh, the specificity is, is very important when we talk about testing. Doctor, so, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can you explain the concept of viral load and specificity uh, sensitivity just to make sure that uh, anyone who's who's listening who isn't a healthcare provider or in the field can also follow? Sure. So viral load, just really as the name suggests, basically having enough virus in your body to be able to be detected, you know, um, on, on the test, uh, if you will. So that's basically really the, the bottom line in, in layman's terms. Sensitivity and specificity are terms that we use in terms of uh, categorizing test, various types of tests and how good that they work. So the, the more sensitive it is, the higher likelihood that it'll give you uh, the correct result, right? So those are just terms that we use to say, you know, it's 99% accurate in terms of if I have a positive result, that means it's telling me it's 99% sure that that truly is a true positive. So those are kind of the terms that we tend to use in terms of trying to categorize uh, the type of testing that's being done. Um, and so that's what diagnostic testing is, right? And so one of the things that I'll just quickly mention in terms of the antibody testing or the serology testing, right? And this is a question I often get. So if I know I have antibodies for COVID-19, what does that mean to me, right? So everybody wants to know bottom line, and they should know bottom line. So bottom line is, if I know I have antibodies for COVID-19, what does that mean for me? Essentially, what it's telling us is that we have obviously more cases that we know about, you know, uh, that, you know, you're going to be, you know, counted in the overall case count, if you will. But in terms of at the individual level, you're still going to take everyday precautions, right? That doesn't mean that you're not going to go out and wear a mask, right? So people think, well, I've already had COVID-19, so I'm immune. I can go out. I can touch my face. I, can, I, don't, I don't have to wash my hands. I can come close to people. I don't have to wear a mask. That's not true at all. So you still have to take the everyday preventative measures. Um, and another reason for that is we still don't know about long-term immunity, right? This is something that's still being discovered. We know about basic virology. We know how viruses tend to act. Uh, similarly, with other coronaviruses, we know that 
once you are infected with a with a, an infection, you have immunity for a certain period of time. We don't know what that certain period of time may mean with COVID-19. It could mean three months. It could mean six months. It could mean one year. It could mean two years. With SARS, which is another sister virus of uh, COVID-19, you're seeing um, some individuals um, had immunity for up to two years. We just don't know about that with COVID-19 because we're only seven months in, right? So this is something where time will tell. Uh, so a couple of differences there, but a couple of things to, to note. So and, and and I'm not banking on, I mean, uh, you know, back in uh, sort of that, that first huge wave um, and peak in New York City, um, I, I came down with uh, COVID-19 and actually tested positive for antibodies. And ladies and gentlemen, I still wear my, my respir- respirator masks and, uh, you know, go in with full PPE yeah. in every case. And I've met, and this is the, you know, sort of where we, we all need to work on this, right, um, at all levels, but one of the um, resident physicians that I was working with, I had to like sit him down like, yo, man, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, I had it already and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah but you, <laughs> you know, you still need to, 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 to wear your stuff because we yeah. could be susceptible and, and not really just sort of hanging our hats on that um, theoretical immunity from this disease. We just don't know. We don't know. We don't. And this is why that whole idea early on in giving people passports. I don't know if you remember this whole conversation. Yes. If they have antibodies, give them a passport. They could go to work. They could go to work do whatever. Yeah. Exactly. That was a horrible idea. And now people hopefully realize why. Um, I think uh, perhaps a couple of last things that I'll mention. I'm not sure how much, you know, time that we have. But one of the things that I would like to highlight um, is caution fatigue. So you can let me know whenever you think is appropriate to kind of talk about that, you know, kind of ending our conversation. I think that's really important right now because um, I could see that in, you know, sort of people's um, are, are letting their guard down essentially, or that's right. really just, um, I think we were talking about it actually on this show, right? Um, sometimes I think that on health in Harlem, we're like fear mongers and I'm like, no, but we're, <laughs> we're talking about real stuff, um, but also giving you some, you know, prescriptive advice. But if you don't mind going into that, that um, concept, that would be great. Yeah, so absolutely. So, so caution fatigue essentially is something, uh, is a a term that we use where people are just, obviously they're tired of lockdowns, they're tired of shelter in place, and they're tired of, you know, uh, abiding by these social distancing guidelines that all of us are constantly talking about in public health and, and healthcare in terms of watching your distance, washing your hands, wearing a mask. And so people tend to get relaxed about it because they're just so tired of hearing it. They just don't, don't want to do it anymore. But it's so important to not give up, right? Um, and we know that you're just inundated and everybody's so tired of hearing about COVID-19. I'm tired about hearing COVID-19. And this is what uh, I do right I now. Can, I mean, my soul right now well. is, is COVID-19. I'm, I'm in, involved with so many different initiatives from hospitals to so, contact tracing to frontline, things like that. Um, but what we know is this is not going away anytime soon. And this is not a game of pass or fail. This is a game of life and death, right? And when we talk about life and death, this is serious, right? This is really serious. And we want to make sure people understand that this is not the time to just put your hands up and say, I'm done. I just, I can't do it anymore. Because again, it's not about you. It's about your loved one. It's about your community. It's about those around you. And if all of us feel that way in terms of just giving up, then this pandemic is going to obviously get worse and worse and worse. And we want to make sure that that does not happen. And so it's important to continue to abide by these measures. But, you know, some tips that, you know, that I'll provide just generally is 
you know, we're, and you've heard this, we're all, in, we're all in it together, but this is a time to really, you know, come together and to try to continue do things, to do things that make you happy, but in a safe uh, uh, manner, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I think we often do a poor job at, and we're, we're you know, we, this was kind of the message early on, is absenteeism, right? In terms of don't do this, don't go out, just stay home, right? And if you tell somebody just to stay home, the likelihood of them staying home for an extended period of time is pretty low. So you always want to provide them with instructions of if you do have to go out, if you do have to do X, Y, and Z, this is how to do it safely. And so it's not about just not doing it at all. It's giving them the education and the tools and the knowledge to do things, but to reduce your risk, right? So that's the term that we use, risk reduction, in terms of if you want to go out and see a loved one, go and do it outdoors. Go do it in a park. Go do it where somewhere where there's well-ventilated. If you want to go out to a restaurant, again, sit outdoors, keep your distance, right. right? So we can give you some of the tools and knowledge that we have in terms of being able to do something safely. We can't guarantee it's so nothing's going to be 100% of, uh, in terms of prevention, right? Nothing's going to be 100% in terms of prevention. The only way we can do that elimination is if you're staying home and you're not coming in contact with anybody. But we need to make sure people understand there are activities that are higher risk than others and there are activities that are lower risk than others and so now you're seeing a huge genre of people producing information of risk indexes i have so many colleagues that are producing school-based risk indexes or hospital-based risk indexes or just personal risk indexes in terms of if you're going to school these are activities that are higher in terms of risk than others if you're going to stay home if you're going to have a party if you're going to do this and that these are activities that pose higher risk we want to make sure we're giving individuals the tools the knowledge and the resources of how to engage in activities that are of lower risk and then understand what are activities that are of higher risk and one of the things that you may have seen is uh, even in some of these reputable uh, journals and, and reputable news outlets, they were shaming people of going to the beach. They were shaming people of going to the movies outdoors, right? And it's unfortunate. Or not wearing masks all the time. Exactly. All the time. Yeah, like sitting in a park and being spaced out, things like that, right? And this is where we want people to understand there are activities that pose lower risk than others, right? Again, you can't guarantee this is going to be 100% preventative, right? That you, you just can't. Um, but at least you're reducing your risk. And there are activities that are obviously of much higher risk. So if you're going to have a party with 30 people in a very small indoor area, that's obviously a much higher and riskier situation than obviously going to the beach, spreading out, being outdoors. Um, and so we want to make sure that people do understand that, again, there are behaviors and there are activities that, are, that pose a higher risk than others. But generally, we often talk about risk in terms of COVID-19, of have, making sure that you have uh, an area that is well ventilated. So, you know, less crowd, right? So being around, you know, less people. Um, and then it also really depends on your duration of exposure, right? So are you going to be there for three hours, four hours, five hours, as opposed to two minutes, right? So going grocery shopping and passing somebody down a grocery, uh, passing someone down a cereal aisle, aisle versus sitting in a restaurant indoors, you know, basically, you know, two feet away, right? So, and then sitting there for, you know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So, you know, those are some factors that, you know, we we tend to think about in terms of exposure and increasing your risk of contracting COVID-19. So I can't go clubbing right now in Atlanta, you're saying? 
Yeah, well, I would not. At the top of my no, <laughs> yeah. no, they're still open. They're still open. Oh my it god, it kills me. Yeah. And I'm like, I get people, and I'm like, wait, what? Ha- like, where were you? Oh. oh, well, I was at the club. It was like, oh. See, that's and, the thing. Uh, you know, no one wants to go back to lockdown and shelter in place. And if you don't want to do that, which no one wants to do that, um, we need to make sure that we are doing things that can help reduce the number of cases and transmission in a community, like closing down bars and clubs mm-hmm. and restaurants and things like that. And then, you know, having people wear masks. These are things that will be, you know, very close to uh, or maybe as effective as shelter in place and lockdowns. So, so Dr. Madad, and, and I, I want to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, do you speculate that it's that the end of this COVID pandemic will come when we reach herd immunity or will it be when we have a uh, the ability to reduce our numbers to the point where transmission is so low? Or, or do you think that we're not going to get to that until we have a vaccine or a treatment? And just real quick, before we answer that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is coming from the experts. So there's no speculation. This is data-based information. Um, from Dr. Madad. Sorry, Dr. Madad. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, herd immunity is a term that has been thrown out there uh, and and widely discussed uh, a lot, right? So when we talk about herd immunity and trying to achieve herd immunity, first, we don't know what herd immunity means in the context of COVID-19, right? So do you need to have 20% 20% in terms of herd, herd immunity, do you need to have 80%, 90%, right? We, we still don't know that. Um, essentially, what herd immunity means is that you have uh, enough people in a given population, in a given community that have had COVID-19. And so when somebody, for example, has it, you have less likelihood of passing it on to somebody that's susceptible, right? And then creating new chains of transmission. Um, so I have seen a very wide range in terms of what herd immunity may mean for COVID-19. I've seen everything from 20% in literature to 93%. So it's a very wide range. Um, In terms of achieving herd immunity, it could be obviously through the natural route. So people naturally getting infected with COVID-19 and then, you know, um, having enough people in the community that get infected enough to get to that level. Or as you've mentioned, through inoculation, right? Getting getting it through vaccination. Now, there's a couple of things, right? There's two, there's challenges on both sides. If we go through the natural route, now, just imagine seven months into this pandemic, right? And in New York City, we had our first case, what, March 1st? And now we're, you know, we're, you know, in, uh, in mid-August. Here in the United States, 5 million cases, close to 200,000 deaths, right? In just a matter of months. Now, if we were trying to reach herd immunity, we would go on for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. right? Just to get to that type of level. Now, just imagine the number of people that would have to die and the number of people that would have to get infected for us to naturally get to that herd immunity level, right? It's going to take time. And so just imagine the amount of loss of life and the amount of loss of years of life, if you will. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's astronomical. Um, and the one thing that I'll also note about, uh, you know, um, herd immunity and, you know, trying to achieve herd immunity through the natural means um, is often people think of a disease by looking at the number of people that are dead, right, or that have died because of this disease, right? So with COVID-19, you're, you're looking at here in the United States close to, you know, 200,000, for example. That is a very poor indicator of the burden of the disease itself. And the reason for that is because you're only looking at the number of 
individuals that have died. You're not looking at the people that have been infected and are living with the long-term consequences of COVID-19, right? So you as a frontline provider know very well some people are having long-term effects of COVID-19. Some people are actually, you know, they're at higher risk of developing other medical conditions because sure. they were infected with COVID-19, right? So you're seeing an uptick in stroke. You're seeing an uptick in people requiring dialysis. We actually still don't know the long-term effects. We don't know the sequelae of COVID-19. So if you're basing how bad COVID-19 is just on the number of people that have died, that is not giving you the full picture of the true impact of this devastating disease, right? Um, so I just I wanted to just quickly mention that. So going back to vaccination, right? So if we try to achieve her, uh, you know, um, herd immunity through vaccination, first, it's going to take at least two years to be able to vaccinate as many people, right, in the United States as possible. So we have obviously millions of individuals, millions of citizens living in the United States. And Developing vaccines will take time and then being able to distribute it, manufacture, distribute it, and then administer it, all of this will take time. Right now, we still don't even know whether this is a two-shot vaccination, right, if you need a booster shot. So there's a lot that we don't know in terms of trying to reach, you know, herd immunity. That is obviously the goal, but we there is a lot of uncertainty of how to get there, when we will get there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot that we're still trying to, to figure out. So... Uh... Going off of that, we actually have a show planned for next week where uh, Dr. Italo Brown will be uh, joining us on Health in Harlem. And we're going to be talking about how we get to that vaccine point and um, really who at whose expense or or if history is going to repeat itself at whose expense. Um, and I think a lot of that burden of that medical research um, typically seems to fall on minorities to, to be the volunteers. And um, I think there's a history of medical mistrust that is founded in medical negligence, deception. And so I'm wondering, do you foresee this being an issue in, in vaccine development? And when would you personally trust a vaccine for you to get vaccinated yourself? If if you think that that's where you what you would do yeah absolutely i mean i vaccines work i am a very a big you know proponent of you know vaccinations because they save lives you know at the end of the day right they save lives if you look at just vaccines in general the millions of people that have been saved because of vaccines is astronomical around the world now with covid-19 you cannot rush safety you cannot rush efficacy, right? And so this is why we're going through phase three trials. I can't say anything until I see the data. I want to see the data. I want to see how well it works. I want to see any adverse side effects. Uh, and that is what will tell me whether I feel confident in getting vaccinated. Now you're seeing today in the news, Russia has a vaccine available. I don't even know if they went through phase three clinical trials, you know, they did, did they not. have that? Yep, exactly. Um, you're having reports that they did not. You're seeing that they, they did not test it. Uh, they, they didn't go through the proper process of having thousands of people enrolled. So do I feel safe uh, of taking that vaccine? Absolutely not. I want to see the data, right? And like everybody else, I would not let my neighbor take something until I know it's safe and effective. I would not do something for myself, you know, and I would not want my neighbor doing the same thing, right? Uh, so, um, so it's important that we have the tr- facts, and that's this is again this is where transparency is so important. We want to see the facts, we want to see the data. We know vaccines work, we know how important they are, but at the same time, right? This is where this Operation Warp Speed 
the terminology goes a long way. This is why people are fearful because they're saying terminal. They're saying Operation Warp Speed, meaning they're making the vaccine a record amount, record uh, you know number of um, and in terms of the timeline. Does that mean it's not safe and effective? Right. So people are asking that question, and absolutely they should. Um, and this is why we want to see the data, as I mentioned. Um, so that's that's extremely important. Would a would a vaccine only protect against a specific strain of COVID, uh, or would it? kind of give a general immunity to uh, that kind of SARS-like infection? Uh, or is it going Because Because I, I know that there are projections that the strain might mutate, the genetics might change, which would then mean that uh, you wouldn't necessarily have this robust immune secondary exposure response that you're hoping for from a vaccination or sure. from previous exposure. So this will probably be the last question I, I, yes. I may have to answer because I have to hop off. Sorry. No, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of the different strains of COVID-19, right? So viruses mutate. That's just natural, right? This is not something new. So again, you know, a, a lot of people are actually learning about epidemiology and they're learning about viruses and virology um, and science and public health for the very first time. And they're, they're thinking, oh, this is brand new. This is something we didn't know about. A lot of this is something we already knew because this is just basic foundation, basic science when it comes to, to viruses is that especially RNA viruses, they are prone for, to mutation. Where it matters, right, because everything is what is bottom line. How does it affect me? Does it make a difference? So bottom line is, is it, does it have a biological significance when it mutates? Right now, uh, we don't see that biological significance. It's making, there are some strains that are more transmissible than others, but in terms of, you know, uh, for vaccines, does it change the overall structure of the virus? Um, and is it going to make something less effective? Um, we are not seeing that in terms of it actually having a biological significance. Um, and that's really the bottom line. Now, that's not to say things may, that big things may not change. You know, you can't say that. Things can absolutely change. Viruses continue to have more significant mutations where it completely changes kind of the genetic makeup, if you will, of that virus. Is that possible? Absolutely. Uh, but we haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Um, Dr. Madad, I want to thank you very, very much for, for sharing this information with our uh, listeners and um, what would you say? I know you got to go real, real quick. What is the most important thing our, our listening audience, if anything, out of this whole conversation, what is the most important thing they should take home um, from this show? So I think that you've heard so many times, you know, what to do, you know, in terms of wearing a mask, washing your hands. Everybody knows that. I think that's ingrained in everybody's brain now. But what you probably hear less about and something that I would want you to take away is health resilience in terms of making sure that you're healthy, that you get enough sleep, that you this is a stressful situation. I'm stressed. You're stressed. We're all stressed. We're all in together, but take care of yourself, right? That doesn't mean I shouldn't go out for a walk. That doesn't mean that, you know, I shouldn't go to my doctor. And if I am having any psychological issues, cause I'm just so overwhelmed, I shouldn't see somebody because of the risk of COVID-19, you know, go seek help. If you need help, you know, everybody is experiencing different issues, economic mm -hmm. hurdles, social issues. If you need to seek help, please seek help. It's important that you stay healthy and that you stay strong. Yes, indeed. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one thing I want to say is that we are committed to your well-being and health. And so, you know, the frontline providers out there, I know them. I see them every day. And um, there are so many people that are passionate about this, um, including Dr. Madad. That's why she joined us on this program. And, and so we are here for you. And uh, we're going to get through this together. Thank you very much, Dr. Madad. And um, 
you know, we really look forward to hopefully having you again uh, at some point in the future. And thank you for all that you do um, in in uh, in your field in terms of getting us ready for these pandemics and, and infectious diseases. Thank you. And thank you for being on the front lines. So there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it from the expert herself, Dr. Syra Madad. And we thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. And the only thing that we ask is that you share whatever you learned tonight with anyone that will listen. I want to thank my co-host and lead producer, Giorgio Maloof, for joining me on this episode. And also, I want to extend a shout out and thank you to our associate producers, Reed Vero, Ashley Francis, Anastasia Data. Michael Holmes and DJ and Zach Worley. And ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself. Thank you.